Good evening. Wasn't that awesome? Jenny, that was awesome. Thank you. I don't know, for me, the simplicity, the way she sings is just, it's so uplifting and inspirational, so thank you. It was a blessing. Hey, if you guys have been tracking with us in our studies through 1 Corinthians, you'll know we've come to chapter 7. And we've come to chapter 7. If you've read ahead a little bit, you know we've come to a section of Scripture where the Word of God speaks quite openly, frankly, and even explicitly about a few awkward but necessary topics. The first one is sex within marriage. It's always a little, little weird to preach about sex in front of me. Anyways, is it just me? <laughs> the second topic is divorce, equally awkward because of its ramifications and the social um, plague that it is on our society and how much pain it causes, and a lot of us have has experienced it. And then the third topic is the singled life, which also have some stigmas in churches, don't you think? So very awkward to me, but necessary topics. And there's 40 verses, and we have about 40 minutes, so we're going to go fast, Okay. So if you have any questions, it's markscudstad at edgewater.com, <laughs> especially about the sex one, okay, the first part of this. So we're going to start right off. The first nine verses, Paul is going to say a few things about sex in the confines of marriage. And before we get there, this is awkward for me just a little, I'm not going to lie to you, but it's necessary. Like I said, it reminds me of the time that I taught my oldest son about the birds and the bees. It, and it, I'm telling you, it was a sneak attack because I caught, caught by surprise because as a young dad, I thought I had more time to think about how this was all gonna go down, right? But he, he, he was younger than, I don't remember how old he was, but he seemed too young to ask the question, but he asked it, and my philosophy always was if he's old enough to ask it, He's old enough to get the answer because he's going to get it from somebody. He might as well get it from me, get a biblical view and the correct view on complicated issues. So there you have it. You have little Rai Rai sitting there in the garage with his dad, and he says, Dad, what is sex? He's got these big eyes. He's just as cute as a little guy. I'm just like, oh, my God. So I, didn't, I don't know why I did this, but because we lived on a small farm, we had animals. I started with the animal kingdom right? We had cows. We had chickens, right? We'd even, you, you, you know, hunted uh, night crawlers. And so I, I just started from there. I'm like, I don't know why I did this. I'm like, hey, Ryan, do you remember when we, we collect night crawlers and they're stuck together? And he just, nothing, right? <laughs> do you know when the rooster, you know, just nothing. The cow, and, then I, and then I made this mistake. We always artificially inseminated our cows. So I couldn't eat. I talked it just made it worse. It was, it was a total train wreck. I went to AI, like artificial insemination of a cow. How was I going to help a kid learn about the birds and the bees, right? So finally, I'm like, you know what? I'm, he's just looking at me like, Dad. Finally, I said, you know what? I'm going for it. I'm going in, all in. I'm just, I just told him mommy's parts and daddy's parts and how it worked just right out. And, and his eyes are just getting huge I'm just, as I'm talking to him. 
And then after I was over, I was just like, I mean, I was miserable. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Dad, <laughs> have you ever done that? <laughs> I said, sure, how do you think you and your brother got here? And he looked right at me and everything changed like that. He looked at me and pointed at me and he said, you did that to mommy? <laughs> I was just like, oh my Awkward, <laughs> but necessary. And you know, I, I'm actually really thankful that God's word isn't awkward. It doesn't speak about sex and difficult topics like divorce and, and living the single life as something that should be ashamed of, something that it, like the world does that repacks into something it isn't and tries to sell it to you. It just tells you objectively what it is and what its function is and what the biblical view of it. I'm thankful of that, and hopefully we're going to get into that today. When we talk about sex and marriage, he's going to make three big points in these first nine verses that we should pay attention. I want you to look for. Okay, in the first two verses, we're going to see uh, the, the one thing that, that um, the scripture says about sex is that it can help the married couple from sexual immorality. You can run to your spouse and fulfill your sexual drives. It's a pretty simple concept. Let's read it. Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers, chapter 7, verse 1, he says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good that a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he starts to answer questions that the Corinthians wrote to him about. This is the first verse, first chapter, where he's going to start answering questions that they asked him. And I think in the context here, one of the questions they asked him is, Paul, this place is sexually crazy. There's prostitutes that come down from the temple every night and tempt us. Sex is at every turn, every corner. We're tempted. Because of that, would it be better just to renounce marriage and just renounce sex altogether and live a celibate life and forget the opposite sex and go live what would become amongst life? Is that the answer, Paul? And Paul says this. He goes, hey, listen, it is good. It is good that you don't have sex with women outside the confines of marriage. But he says, hey, the single life's fine. Hey, you want to show discipline? If you want to have a celibate life, a la chapter 6, you better live a, a life of chastity. You better run from that stuff. And it takes discipline. It's a hard thing. He says, because of that temptation, each man can have a wife and a wife could have a husband. That's an option. And I think the point I'm trying to get here is the single life is fine. You don't have to have sex to fulfill you. But if you're tempted, he says, one advantage of being married in a sexually saturated society like Corinth and like the USA, right? If you haven't noticed, sex is at every turn. Sex is at your fingertips. Sex is everywhere. It helps to be married. Amen? It's one advantage of being married. There's some disadvantage, and we'll get to that. But one, one way is, in a sexually saturated society, you can 
you can go to your spouse with your sexual desires. First point he's making. Pretty simple, right? Let's look at the second one, and we'll see here that sex inside marriage is designed for your spouse, not you. It's awesome. Check it out. The husband, verse 3, should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, do not deprive or defraud one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What we want to take from that is a couple of things, but the main thing is, is that sex inside marriage is designed for the fulfillment of your spouse. It actually goes along with the design of marriage. Jesus said it best, and doesn't he always say it the best? He says it's better to what? Give than to receive. Now listen, I don't do a lot of marriage counseling, but if I did, this is what I would say. <laughs> Woman, if you're getting married to get a man, look out. Look out. You should be getting married to give a godly wife to that man. And men, I would say to you, if you're getting married so you can get a wife, put a ring on her finger. I got that. She's my trophy. Look out. If you're looking for her to meet your needs, look out. You should be getting married to give a godly, honorable, noble man, husband to that lady. Do you see how that works? It's better to give than to receive. It's the principle of marriage to start with. It's like two people and trying to make them one. The best way to do that is to give each other away to each other, right? And that's what he's saying sex should be like. He says, it's not for you. It's for the fulfillment of your spouse. We were made this way, that you need your spouse to fulfill you sexually. It's on purpose. <laughs> Never to be demanded, but to be given away. Verse 4 has, there's been so much abuse by that. The woman does not have authority over her own body, but it's the man's, right? The man doesn't have authority over his own body, but it's, it, and it leads people to do something with this verse that's not right in it, not saying, it's not saying, I can demand from you my conjugal rights. It never says that here, and we need to get that straight, and it's ruined a lot of people, and it's caused a lot of abuse. We never take, we give. And if you look at this verse and the way it's really written, it says the woman has not authority. The word's better rendered power. You do not have the power, woman, to sexually fulfill yourselves. Man, you do not have the authority or the power to have real, true sexual ecstasy because it takes more than the physical act to do that. It takes someone giving themselves to you. That's what that verse means is that you need each other. 
It's beautiful. God did it on purpose, right? See, God has given us this gift, the ability to give a special gift to our spouse willingly, and then we can respond one to another. It's beautiful. And the joy of doing that to each other is what brings you to a level of ecstasy in the sexual marriage bed that is better than any other experience, believe it or not. Did you know that? Oh, the world will say, you watch movies, there's all sorts of stuff out there, multiple partners, it's the hookup, it's whatever you wanna look at it. But you know when they do sexual studies, and they do this, and I can't believe they do, but I have never been called, but you know that they actually poll people about their sexual fulfillment. And you know who ranks the highest every time they do it? It's married religious couples. <laughs> Take that, you prude. <laughs> and you know why? It's because it's something that involves more than a physical act. It's more than that. And that's why God wants it in the confines of marriage, in committed love, is because it's a mingling of not only your bodies, but your souls and your spirits. And that means something. And the scars on people's lives who haven't taken that to heart are many. Amen? God help us all to look at sex. It's a serious thing to God. That's why he reserves it for the marital bed. The writers of Hebrews say there's nothing defiled in the marital bed. That's where it belongs. So what the scripture says is, remember, we're to give. We don't demand and that's where the beauty comes. That's where the power of sex and marriage comes from. It's not just a hookup. It's not a demanding. It's a giving of each other away. And I think that's what makes it pretty and beautiful. Amen? Amen. The last two verses in this section tells us the last thing that Paul wants to teach us about sex and marriage. And it shows that it's a special gift from God. Check it out. Verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were like myself. And what he means is I, I wish you all were single. That's what he's saying. He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What he's saying is being single and living a celibate life is a gift. There's something special inside that chastity, in that purity, in that consecration to God, when a single person devotes themselves to the Lord and the Lord alone, that is beautiful, that reflects and manifests God himself. Amen? It's beautiful. He said, I wish you were all like me, but that's one gift. And another gift is, is having, sexual, having sexual freedom in a marriage. That's another gift. It's a gift of God. And it also shows and manifests the glory of God as well in the mingling of body, soul, and spirit. The better than taking is giving. All of that honors and manifests Jesus Christ himself, amen? That's all he's saying, it's a gift. So listen, the first nine verses talks about an awkward topic. And I ain't gonna lie to you, I'm glad we're almost done, <laughs> okay? But there's three big things in this, in this little passage that I want you to get, it's that Married couples, it's good in a sexually saturated society to be married. 
Satisfy yourselves with your spouse. Stop doing pornography. Stop looking at your secretary that way. Whatever the temptation is, fulfill your sexual desires in your wife and in your man, in your husband, amen? That's God's word. Two, remember when you think about sex, it's better to give than to receive. You give each other away. That's where the beauty comes, right? That's where it starts to, you respond to that and it's, it's, it's something more than a, than a physical act. And thirdly, it's a gift and it reflects Jesus Christ, amen? I think I got the short end of the stick. You know, they divide up the chapters. I'm sh- I wasn't there. I'm pretty sure I know why I got the chapter. But awkward but necessary. But I feel like I'm jumping from the pot onto the frying pan because our next topic is divorce. And to be honest with you, it's awkward in a whole different way. It's awkward because there can be stigma in the church. There's some people in here, undoubtedly, maybe half of us that have been divorced, right? And I've never experienced it, but from my point of view, it hurts people. I don't know a person that's been divorced that doesn't have a scar from it. The damage it does to people, especially the little people, is devastating, and it's a social scourge on our society, and it has been for as long as time has started. It's not supposed to be this way, okay? We're gonna talk about it, and I also wanna encourage you, whatever state you are in, on your first marriage, your second marriage, your third marriage, your fourth marriage, I don't care where you're at right now, widowed, singled, married, happy, whatever, we're going to get there. There's a couple verses, but, but I want to encourage you. God can use you right where you're at. Right where you're at, amen? You let God hold your head up and listen to this because it's his word and there's no shame right now. You are in the present. However you got where you're at, where you got. It involved a lot of choices, no doubt, but God allowed those choices and he was in and around you and he let you do what you did. I don't know how, why he lets us do things that aren't right, but he does sometimes. And guess what? He's still with you. And he still wants to work with you. He can redeem where you're at, wherever that is. So please, because I've never experienced, I'm not talking down to you. I'm just trying to tell you what God's word said. Maybe we can get a little upstream from this, right? Maybe you can use your experience to teach your kids about this because I'm telling you right now, it's of epidemic proportions divorce is. Amen? Worldwide, USA, it's, it's all, I mean, just, just say it's about half of marriages fail. That's staggering. And the more staggering fact is, listen, and I don't know why, because we're having such good sex as married religious couples, but inside the church, it's not any better. It's about 50% inside the church. So listen, it's an epidemic. We got to get upstream from this. And I think it starts with God and his word. I really do. I think it's a social problem. We can, we, can, we can at least help by teaching our young people, try to get a little upstream from it. But there's no shame. Let's listen to what God says about it and let's move forward. Let's check it out. Verse 10. This is talking about two Christian people a husband and a wife that are believers. 
That's what he's talking about. It's, 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 it's Christian divorce. That's what he's talking about right now. Check it out. Verse six. Nope, sorry, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So there you have it. God's heart is that marriage should be forever. That's the intentions when you set out to get married, isn't it? We say things like, I have not been to a wedding that doesn't say these words, till death do us part. I have not been to a wedding that doesn't say for better or worse. We say those things because we know in our heart that the design of marriage is to mate for life. That's God's heart on it. It's tended or intended to be forever. Now, saying that, the Bible and other places give some exception and a little leeway. In one of them, Jesus himself said, if there's sexual immorality in your marriage, if someone cheats on you, if there's infidelity, you can divorce. In God's infinite wisdom, he understands that something gets broke in a person when you get cheated on. And for some people, it cannot be repaired. So he gives a very small escape hatch and says, if your heart hardens because of that, you can divorce. You have grounds to divorce and marry again. Did you know that? Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 10. And I would also add the other exception. I'll just call it danger. If you're in danger physically or emotionally, if you are not safe or your kids are not safe, you don't have to stay in that marriage. Amen? God does not expect you to get beat up in a marriage. Okay? So leave. Those are the two exceptions I see in the Bible. But let's be honest. I mean, after all, we're keeping it kind of real tonight, aren't we? Kind of raw. That's not why most people get divorced. We live in a day and age where there's no fault divorces. And that means you don't even have to have a reason. <laughs> Do you understand that? That's the law of the land right now in a lot of states. You can just, whatever. That's the epidemic. Yes, there's exceptions, but the rule as I see it for a lot of us is that we view marriage as a room we get thrust into with an escape hatch very conveniently at both exits, right? And so when things get a little sideways, my needs aren't being met in whatever capacity we find the exits, right? We forget our vows. We forget that maybe the room Escape hatch is really, really hard to get out of. It's, it's an exception to the rule. It's more like God throws you in a room, 
shuts the door and locks the door and says, now you two that think you know each other, why don't you work some things out, right? Why don't you figure it out? The rooms are padded. Get after it and figure it out, right? I think that's more of the idea of what marriage should be like. It gets hard sometimes, amen? I mean, come on. Reminds me of the quote from Ruth Graham. Some of you may have heard this. But Ruth Graham was married to the Reverend Billy Graham, right? And I think she got interviewed by Katie Couric on the Today Show, and I think it was like their 60th anniversary. And I think Katie said something like this to Ruth Graham. said, Ruth Graham, you have been married to the Reverend Billy Graham for 60 years. Have you ever once, once, even for a second, thought about divorce? And all Ruth Graham didn't, just deadpans it, just deadpans it. Says, divorce, no, murder, yes. <laughs> he's mine. <laughs> I may kill him, but he's mine. <laughs> That's a different attitude, isn't it? That's a, a, a different kind of way to work your problems out. It's like the nuclear options off the table it kind of inspires you to be creative on how to work your stuff out. Don't you think? I think that's the idea. It can be difficult, sometimes even heartbreaking. I do think God designed it like a room that should be locked and only in emergency situations, like when you're unsafe or someone cheats on you, would you ever look for the escape hatch? That's it. I think if we had that mindset going in, we might get past some of this. It makes sense. It's supposed to be a bond. You, you know, when, you, when you're negotiating, when you're trying to work something out, if you have another option that's easier, I mean, it just makes sense we take it sometimes. Who would start out to run a marathon and say to this, when it starts to hurt, I'm going to stop? Not very many people would make it. I'm not comparing, you know... Marriage is, marriage, marriage is not a sprint. It, it's, it's a long haul. It's a beautiful, committed love that through it all, through the tears, through the heartache, some of you guys have fought it out through the good and the bad and the ugly. Some of you have lost kids and stayed together. So inspiring to me. Because in times of tragedy, it's when we either get closer or we get driven apart. And if you look at the statistics, when you lose a child, what happens, it's incredible. Some of you guys have come out the other side of that, inspiring to look at. Some of you guys have had relatively easy lives. I don't know how God works this stuff out. I do know this, that it almost seems like a dirty trick sometimes. We think we know each other. We have our own little families we came from, and we come together, and those first few years are rough. They can be. You're trying to figure each other out. You know, sometimes my wife and I, our, our oldest just got engaged. I'm like, he has no idea what's coming. In a good way and a bad way. It's like, because we've been out the other side of 27, 28 years, Right? You've been out the other side of that, and you're like, man, I'm sure if she could have run, she probably would have. We have a saying in our house is when we do something, you should have looked the other way, honey. <laughs> but you picked me, so now you're stuck with me. Yeah. I think that's what marriage is. It's to provide an unbreakable bond. 
And that provides some security to work yourselves out, knowing that that nuclear option is not on the table helps quite a bit in negotiations, I think. It's long, 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 long obedience in the same direction. That's what marriage is. Just be obedient to what God called you to be as a husband, as a wife. Long, long, faithful obedience. You just put one foot in front of the other and you work your stuff out the best that you can and pray that something bad doesn't happen, right? The next four verses is what I would call mixed couples divorce. It's when one's a believer and one is not a believer. Check it out. Starts in verse 12. To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is not a, who is, who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know what? Wife, whether you will save your husband, and how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? Real quickly, we're running out of time fast. What he's saying there is when you are married to an unbeliever, okay, you're, whatever happened, happened. You didn't listen to be unequally yoked and you got married anyways, it doesn't matter. Or maybe you were both unsaved and one got saved and one didn't. It doesn't matter. If you're in a marriage where one's saved and one isn't saved, that marriage is still valid, still valid. <laughs> and he says this, he says, if the unbelieving one does not want to leave, stay in the marriage and quit being a religious bigot. That's what he's saying. Some of these people thought that their marriages were less holy because their spouse was unbelieving. And that's not true. It's not true at all. That's not the way it works. You don't pressure your spouse to go to church. You don't act holier than thou because that's the thing that unbelievers hate about Christians is they're goody two-shoes and we're rule followers and we ought to be grace wearers and we ought to show what we believe in our skin and in our life prior to giving someone a hard time, amen? And that's all he's saying. He's saying live in peace, live in grace. And when you see these people that do this, there's a chance what he's saying is that you could lead your spouse to the Lord. That's why you stay with them, is there's a chance that you could draw them where God's spirit can save them. That's all he's saying. And when you see it, it's beautiful. I grew up with a, a friend whose mom was saved and she was the most graceful, noble, elegant person I ever met when I watched her handle rowdy sons and rowdy husband, and she just carried herself in such a Christian manner. It just blew me away. She never once made him feel bad or felt second-class citizen. She wore Jesus on her life every day and served him and served her sons, and eventually he got it. And he got it because of her. That's what led him to the Lord. Finally opened his eyes to say, she's the real deal. And that's all he's talking about. But if that person wants to leave, God says, let them leave. If they're shut down, let them go. And you're free now to remarry. That's all he's saying. That's the rules of mixed divorce. Amen?
It's pretty simple. Quit being a religious bigot. If you have an unsaved husband, quit making them feel like they're second-class citizens. Love them like you love yourself. And guess what? They may see Jesus in that, and they may come to the Lord. That's all he's saying. There's a little section here, and we already covered it. It's called Live As You Are Called. And we'll skip through it for time's sake because I want to spend five minutes of our last time on the singled life. But it just says this, and I already talked about it. You're to live where you're at. You can read where it's at. Whether you are divorced, widowed, married, whatever your state is, Jesus Christ wants you to live as you are called. That's what those verses say. Read it on your own. And if you want to know what you're called to, it's not the station of your life. We are in this predicament. Whatever station of life you are in right now, you got there from a couple of things. God allowing you to make a bunch of choices and him in it all putting you where you're at. I know that's a, that's a dichotomy, but that's why you're there and your calling, it's found in the first chapter of this book. You're called to the fellowship of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an inner relationship you have with Jesus Christ. And you can do that in any state, in any station of life. You can do it when you're divorced. You can do it when you're single. You can do it when you're happily married. You can do it when you are anywhere in the world. You can do it when you're poor. You can do it when you're rich. You can, it doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter what your past life is. And he gives two examples about circumcision and slavery that proves it. We don't care about you being a slave. Whether you're a slave or you're free, it doesn't matter. Because true freedom comes from the relationship that Jesus Christ has called you to, not your situation. God's about relationships. And he can redeem anything, right? That's what Paul's saying. He's talking about a bunch of different married and sex and married and being celibate and being a widow and all this. Stuff. He said, I don't care where you're at. Live as you're called. And that's, to the, that's in the fellowship of our Lord Jesus Christ. So through it all, look for relationships. Finally, the singled life. Verse 25, and I'm having a hard time seeing up here. I say that every time. I'm going to wear glasses next time. <laughs> You'll see me with glasses next time. Let's check it out because, because really, there also is a stigma in church about single people. Have you noticed that? I, I've noticed that. I've never understood it, that somehow the woman who doesn't have a husband is somehow missing out on something. And us that are married, we love our lives and we love our kids, but, but the single woman who's dedicated herself to the Lord and to mission and all that stuff, that's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. And Paul here is gonna elevate, elevate singled life a little bit because by the way, he was single. He was. So he's gonna say there's nothing wrong with being single. So stop it in the church to think this. He actually brings it quite up here, quite a way. He said there's no moral thing connected to it. God's not commanding you to be married or not to be married. It's up to you. Check it out. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed or the singled, I have no command from the Lord. He said, I, there's no morality to this. There's, God hasn't said much about this. But he said, I'm going to give you my judgment as one of the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He says, I'm going to, listen, God doesn't have much to say about this, being single, but I'm going to give you my opinion as an apostle, as a bachelor. I'm going to give you my opinion. And he says this, I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. 
Are you bound to a wife? Do you seek to be free? Are you free from a wife? Do you seek a wife? But if you do, marry. And if you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who married will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of this. That sounds like he was married. Did you get that last one? He said, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would like to spare you of this. It sounds like he's been married, because everybody who marries understand those worldly troubles, right? I don't know. I don't know if you caught it, but what, what he says is they were under a lot of stress. In this present distress, he says being single has an advantage, and it is that you're a little more flexible. In a time of crisis, when you're single, you're a little bit more flexible. You have less roots. You have less responsibility. You can pick up and go do whatever you want. I mean, let's just put it this way. If there was a time of urgently distressed in your household and you had 10 kids, let's just say Matt Heverly, okay? The, the smoke alarm goes off and all his kids were home and all his foster kids, there was a lot of people there. There's a small village in his house cuddled up together. When he got up, it would take him a long time to get out of his house, wouldn't it? Because he's responsible for his wife, his five kids, his 12 foster kids, right? His wife's pictures of his kids and his foster kids, right? There's a lot. It, it, I'm just trying to give you an example versus the bachelor who's playing Call of Duty and he smells a smoke alarm. It's all he's got to grab is his PS5 and he's gone, right? It's that easy. That's all he's saying is in a time of distress, it helps to be single. That's all it's saying. There's worldly troubles. There's worldly responsibilities when you're married. It's not knocking marriage. It's just saying here, this is the reality of it. If you're a little bit light on, on your feet, it's an advantage of being a single. You want to go do a mission? Go do a mission. It's right now you're getting squeezed. You're stressed out. Well, guess what? You can eat ramen. You don't have to worry about your kids eating ramen. You get it? So in a time of distress, it's easier to be single. That's all he's saying. So don't knock being single is what he's saying. And the second thing, it says it helps with your priorities. Let's read it. Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as they had none. And those who mourn as that they're mourning no more. And those who rejoice like they should not rejoice. And those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Time. Time. I can't get the image out of my head. If you were here last year with James, he had the long rope. The time that we're living in, in history, is that little, remember the little piece, the little four-inch piece of red tape? That, that, that's where we're living right now. And is all he's saying is stop filling the red stuff with all the white. The white stuff's what matters. Do you know that married life is good? And you know your responsibility as a father and a mother and a whatever it is, a son, a daughter, all those are really important. But do you know there'll be no marriage, human marriage in heaven? Well, you'll recognize your loved ones. But there's a different marriage up there. Did you know that? Did you know that the marriage right down here can be beautiful? Ephesians chapter 5. It's supposed to represent or it's supposed to paint a picture for the world of what? Christ and his church. We're getting married someday to Jesus Christ. Did you know that, believers? You should say amen. 
awesome. Our groom is going to marry his bride, and that's us someday. Marriage on earth is nothing more than a shadow or a picture of that if you do it right. But in and of itself, it has no eternal value. Did you, do you understand that? It's just a picture. So quit knocking single people about not being married, is what Paul's kind of saying. He's saying, listen, stop acting like your kids are gods. Quit putting your wife up here. She can't and never can and never will meet your needs like Jesus Christ can. It takes so, it's beautiful because it takes so much pressure off your marriage. If your eternal relationship with Jesus Christ comes first and your marriage is second, that's biblical. If you both have right relationships vertically, you're going to just make it. It's going to be beautiful. You can simply be free to enjoy your spouse for the good and the bad and quit taking life so seriously. The life that's going to last forever is vertical. That's all he's saying. Time is short. Single people, you don't have all this minutia and good stuff. Don't get me wrong. I love being married and I love my kids and I couldn't imagine it in another way. But I think in America, we elevate and worship our wives and our husbands and our kids. And it ought not to be that way. And Paul's saying, listen, time is short. Make sure you're spending time on eternal things. That's what he's saying. And when you're single, you're freer to do that. It's an advantage of being single. It elevates it just a little bit. You with me? The last one, we, we're going fast. I know there's a lot here. The last one here is another advantage that, that he says of being single is that it can create better opportunities for you to do ministry. And I won't read it, but I'll just, it's the truth. It's, you know, do you know how many missions I've passed on because I have my responsibilities as a father? as the breadwinner, and, not, and that is correct. I am, will not sacrifice my family on the altar of ministry. That's not right either. It's just the way it is. I do the best I can with what I have, but the single person has more opportunities if they took it. They usually don't, but they can. They don't need to be playing PlayStation or looking at porn and all this crap that people do as they're single. They can actually raise up their life and be consecrated wholly to the Lord and pick up at a minute's notice and go to a different country and do a mission or go down to the park and do missions. They can do it. They have more freedom, and that's all that Paul's saying. There's also some disadvantages to being single. And he finishes this way in the last few verses, and I'll just paraphrase them for you. One is sexual immorality. That's a drive that's in each one of us, and it's powerful. Amen? It's the real deal. We need to be honest and upright, forthright with it like God's word is. You need to handle yourself correctly, and that's not easy. It's not easy in Corinth, and I'm telling you, it's not easy right now. God help our kids. What they have access to at a second notice blows me away. It's crazy. Every turn, this society has been sexualized. They're sexualizing our kids now. It's sick what's happening right now. It's hard to be single. I agree with Paul. It might be better to get married. I have a lot of respect for young people that just say, I'm getting married. This is crazy, right? That's the, one of the disadvantages. 
The other disadvantage is, anybody single will tell you this, is it's lonely sometimes being by yourself. Yeah, you have the Lord and all that stuff, but we have emotional needs as well as sexual needs. Amen? I see widows all the time. And they always want, I see a lot of old people because I'm, I'm an eye doctor, and they all want me to hook me up with their older patients. The guy's like, hey, you got any? I'm like, they're lonely. All these old people, their wives die, and then they, I'm like, no, I'm not going to hook you up with her. I'm sorry. <laughs> Happens all the time because they have emotion. They're lonely. They've experienced married life. That's difficult. It's difficult. So those are some drawbacks. And I would say this, very awkward, to me anyways, a little bit, necessary, three topics he covered today. I would challenge you to read it and read it again and read it and read it again. But to summarize, sex and marriage is good. There's some advantages to it. Give to each other, don't demand. Okay, it's a gift from God. And God can be reflected even in that. Okay, divorce, man, let's get upstream from this. Where you're at right now is probably irrelevant. God wants to work with you wherever you're at. So there's no shame. Let him hold your head up and get upstream from this. So talking to young people about this. We might have a chance. Maybe God can do a work in our city if we get upstream from it and start teaching our young people the real meaning of the word that we've almost forgotten in our society today called commitment, a committed love, right? And then finally, don't be religious bigots. Single people are people too. Their lives matter, okay? Lord, thank you so much for your word and these difficult topics and the volume that we covered today. I just, I thank you. I pray that your grace would be upon it and that for some, some of us, we would, we would learn from this and you would teach us even the awkward way that it was presented. I pray that you'd do something special with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Enjoy your evening.